Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week I began a, a short little series in this chapter, the first part of chapter 2 at least. It, it was too much to try and tackle all in one sermon, and so I divided it up. But really it's one concept. It's a biblical model for spiritual leadership. These are sweet portions of Scripture where Paul is, is interacting personally with this, the church in Thessalonica. And it seems, at least as we read this text, that Paul is, in some sense, responding to, to the detractors, probably the same types of people that ran him out of town when he was there. He's responding to the criticisms and the accusations that they have leveled against him in his absence. No doubt as, as the enemy, as the devil, is working through these detractors to try and stamp out God's work in this city before it takes root, these Jewish leaders who rejected the gospel that was brought to them and who were jealous of the Gentiles coming to salvation have now probably started to surround the church with all kinds of lies and accusations, saying things like Paul came into town and then he quickly left after he received money from you, playing on probably the reality that was in their day just as it is in ours, that people use religion to line their pockets. And so they're calling into question Paul's motives, saying things like, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Sure, he came and told you these things, but now these Jewish learned scholars are coming in and saying, Paul doesn't really understand the Old Testament. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. Let us help you make sense of what Paul told you. So they're saying he, he did it out of error or impurity or just an attempt to, fl an attempt to flatter and deceive. Whatever they're saying Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, is standing, as it were, on trial. But not before his detractors. Paul could care, couldn't care less what his detractors thought of him. But he was concerned that the Thessalonians who had received the gospel, that they would know the heart of Paul, and that they would know his inner motives, and that he was sincere in his coming to them. In this text, he essentially calls two witnesses to his defense. Rather than standing up and saying, that's not true, nuh-uh, like what you would hear on a playground, Paul says, you Thessalonian believers know the truth. You know what we were like. You can examine our lives. You can examine our motives. You can tell us what is true about our ministry. But also, Paul boldly calls on the God of heaven. And he essentially says, God, he does say twice, God is our witness. God stands behind Paul, and Paul is confident in his testimony before God that he has served the Lord with sincerity and truthfulness, that he has no hidden motives or agendas, that he's not trying to do anything out of impurity or selfish ambition. And he's so confident in this that he actually calls on the God of heaven to stand trial for him. God knows our hearts. God has tested our hearts. And God, God will judge me if I'm lying to you. 
That's essentially what he's saying. That's a pretty bold way to defend yourself. The detractors would just quickly dismiss that and say, whatever, you're, you're just talking nonsense. But for the Thessalonians, I think this is a very effective way to defend yourself. For Paul to bolster up the truthfulness of his ministry and to protect the purity of what has happened in the Thessalonian church. Paul's not so much concerned for his own name or his own reputation or his own you know, glory, but he is concerned that these Thessalonians would stay true to the message that they preached to them. So let me read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, although we covered verses 1 to 6 last week, but for the sake of the argument, I want us to hear it again, verses 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of, for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, but that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is a tremendous text, and as I said last week, it's one of those texts that I feel like I can just preach to myself. Obviously, you're here and you want to hear it too, and I encourage you to listen because for, for a couple reasons. First off, I need you to hold me accountable to this standard. We as elders need you as a church and the people of God to hold us to the standard that God sets in his word. Paul, as a man of God, has set the bar high, but only because he is looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not creating a, a, a man's uh, standard. He's creating the standard that was already given to him, that he should live up to and live in a manner worthy of the gospel that has called him into salvation. This is true for all of us. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, if you've been brought into his kingdom and glory, then you are called to the same holy and righteous standard that God has given to all of his children. We need each other. 
to hold our feet to the fire, to hold us accountable, to be the people that God has called us to. It's so easy to lower the bar. In fact, that is the expectation of the community and of the culture in which we live. Just lower the bar. How many times have I heard from people, well, no one's perfect, which is to say, why even try? Why do we even have a standard? Their idea of grace is that we just live how we want and that God will just cover up the rest. But Paul recognizes that the God who called him into his service called him to live in a manner worthy of of the gospel that he gave him. That should be our calling, church. That is our calling. And if we are honest before God and before each other, we will seek to live up to that standard. Paul comes to us on the pages of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 as a man who is set apart. He is a spiritual leader even among his own peers. He has traveling companions, guys like Silas and Timothy and Luke who are ministering with him and among him. But Paul really is the apostle here who is leading the charge. And as he has to awkwardly give a defense for his ministry and remind the Thessalonians, this young church that is trying to be stamped out by the devil through these wicked men, as he reminds them of what he was like, he's not doing so to elevate himself or to say, we were really great. The only reason he has to defend himself is because if they reject Paul, they reject the gospel that Paul preached. And the gospel is the most important thing. Men of God, women of God, who have been set apart for service in Christ's church are first and foremost men and women that have been captured by the gospel. Their hearts and their minds, their lives, the whole trajectory of their life is forever altered by the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. This is Paul. He's already given a list of things that he didn't do, and he's given a rebuttal to some of the accusations that were leveled against him, but now he's going to change gears a little bit, and he's going to give us some metaphors to help illustrate what he was like, what they were like among them. And what, what, what a phenomenal teacher that he uses metaphors that are so close to home. In verse 6, he says this, now, nor did we seek glory. We're not trying to build a reputation. We're not trying to create followers. We're not trying to get people to click and like the button. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In the Greek, there's an idiom here that, it, that is worded like this. We did not throw our weight around. You know what that means. You know that uh, some people in management or the, the person that's the boss, he sometimes comes in the room and he throws his weight around. He uses his authority and his badge and his title to intimidate and to get things done rather than influencing people through love and kindness and service. He looks down on people and influences them with threats and authority. 
Paul is saying, in a sense, we are apostles of Jesus Christ. He could have said, you know what? I was met by the Lord Jesus in person. One of the few people to see the risen Christ in glory. He could have started off his ministry that way. He could have said after they had received the gospel, okay, you guys, you need to know who I am. I'm a pretty big deal. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't throw his weight around. Rather, and then he uses a metaphor here. And we need to discuss this, but let me just say what the the ESV says. But we were gentle among you, meaning we weren't harsh like we could have been. But rather, we were gentle, we were tender, we were kind. Well, how so? Like a nursing mother is tender and kind and gentle towards her infant child. It's possible that that's what Paul is saying here, and that would, that would be totally in keeping with New Testament teaching. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, or 22, 24, I believe. Now, what does he say? I questioned myself, and then it went away. Okay, now I've got to turn there. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Paul says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. The word translated there, kind, is the same word, translated here gentle in 1 Thessalonians. Paul could be saying in Thessalonians, we were kind, we were gentle, like gentle mothers among you. And that would be totally acceptable. That would be right Christian doctrine. That would be the standard of, of Christian leadership that is set for us in the Bible. But there's a tricky thing here. In the ancient manuscripts, obviously we don't have the letter that Paul wrote to Thessalonica. We have copies of those letters. And the, the letters themselves are hundreds and sometimes even over a thousand years old. And so we have pieces of those letters, but thousands of them. And there are really nerdy people that like to live in libraries and like to examine all of these things and fit it all together. And I praise God for these people because these uniquely gifted people help us to understand what the Scriptures actually are. And they can do investigative work to get back to what did the original text actually say with amazing accuracy. And there are few places in the New Testament, where there is, there's a discrepancy, where we would say, ah, it could go this way or this way. So here's one of them. It could be that the word that you see there in your English Bible that says gentle is the Greek word for gentle. But one letter different, it could be the word for infant. What does it matter, Pastor Mike? Well, I, I, I know. Trust me. I spent too many hours on this this week. But this is partly to encourage you that our Bibles are tremendously accurate. This is so encouraging to me. Every time I go down these rabbit holes and I realize, okay, so, okay, that's what it says. Okay, great. And every once in a while, there's these discrepancies where it's like, it could either be infant or it could either be gentle. Either way, I don't think it changes the meaning of what Paul is saying. 
I'm going to go this way. The earliest manuscripts that we have have the word infant, young child. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think when he's saying, we didn't throw our weight around like apostles, like we could have. Instead, we were like infants among you. We were infants among you. What he's trying to communicate is the same thing that Jesus often tried to communicate to his disciples. No doubt this lesson was passed on. Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4 says, we read this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Stupid question, right? You're talking to him. His name is Jesus. You've been following him now for three years. But their question is, which one of us are the greatest? And this isn't the first time they've been caught talking about these things. There were other occasions where Jesus is overhearing bickering among them, like junior high boys. They're arguing about who's greater. My dad could beat up your dad. No, uh my dad could beat up your dad. I could beat you in an arm wrestling match. No, uh And these, these disciples are arguing about which one of them are the greatest. Jesus, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes! That's not the answer they were looking for. Jesus goes on, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This was a lesson that was hard learned for the disciples. For Peter, it, it demanded that he, after, he had to repent after first denying that he even knew Jesus three times. That humbling failure of Peter's before he actually stopped trusting in himself and believing in himself and actually started trusting and believing in the Lord. The Lord Jesus used a child to humble his disciples by saying, this child is who you should be like. Child in the ancient world had no rights. They had no uh, privileges, really. They did what they were told. They didn't talk back. They didn't spend all their day doing what they want. They were told what to do. And Jesus is saying, you need to be humble like a child. And I think that squares beautifully with what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians. We are apostles of Christ, and yet we did not throw our weight around. We did not flash that badge and that title to get things done in the church. But rather, we were like infants among you. We were humble. We claimed no authority except for the Word of God, and that's it. We did not expect anything from you. We came to serve you. I think this is exactly the point that Paul is trying to make in 1 Thessalonians. So in my outline there, you'll see in the sermon notes page, there's two points, but there's really three. I changed my mind after I printed the bulletin or after we printed the bulletin. So if you want to put, you know, point half uh, before point one, you could say this. The childly aspects, that's not even the right word. The, <laughs> what, you word it how you want to. Uh, the, the aspects of a child that relate to spiritual leadership. Humility. 
humility, dependence, all the things that are right and good about children and why Jesus often promoted them to humble his disciples. We too, as we watch the children run around this church, as we watch them play, as we watch them grow, we should remind ourselves that Jesus often said, you need to become like this child. Not in their childishness, but in their humility and in their dependence. So that's the first point. The second, Paul quickly changes gears. This is one reason people think uh, that Paul didn't really write the word infants. He wrote the word gentle because it seems strange that Paul would say, we were, we were infants among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. But Paul often does this. He'll throw out an analogy or a metaphor and then he'll quickly change gears. It's like the word that he uses here reminds him of a different idea. Paul is always doing this. He's, he's distracting himself with more things that he wants to say to the people. So the mention of infants reminds Paul of a nursing mother. He says, not only were we humble like a child in your midst, but we were like a nursing mother in this metaphor exudes different things that relate to their spiritual leadership. Let's take them in order. A nursing mother, according to Paul, takes care of her own children. Just the the image itself of a nursing mother and of this infant child that cannot feed itself, cannot clothe itself, cannot change itself, cannot keep itself warm, is completely and utterly dependent on someone else to take care of it. And this mother, who in an instant or in a season of growth in, in her womb, falls in love with this child grows attached to this child. It's so much so that in Isaiah, God uses a a picture of a mother and an infant as a rebuke on Israel, saying, you're throwing your children away. You're destroying your children. That's how wicked and and, uh, corrupt you have become, that mothers are just casting their children away. Because the obvious picture of a nursing mother exudes tender care. A child that needs everything and a mother who gives up everything to care for her child. Literally, the very life that is being poured out into the child comes from the mother. What a sweet and beautiful picture of care. Something that fathers can care for their children, certainly, and they should, but nothing even comes close to the picture of a nursing mother and the tender care that she exudes for this child. Paul says, we were like nursing mothers when we were among you. We were humble. We weren't there for greed. We didn't come preach the gospel in Thessalonica so that we could line our pockets and get rich. We didn't come and preach the gospel in Thessalonica so that we could exploit you and take advantage of you. We weren't trying to build a platform or a following. 
We weren't trying to get more likes on our social media page. We were there because we loved you. We were there first and foremost because our lives had been transformed by the gospel and because we were convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel and we desperately wanted you to know the truth of the gospel. But as God so graciously worked through our preaching and called some sinners to himself through repentance and faith, we became like nursing mothers. We just began to care for you. We weren't thinking at all of our own lives. We weren't thinking about the suffering that was gonna be inflicted on us that didn't even cross our minds. We just wanted to care for you. Oh, that we would have more pastors and elders in America that would exemplify this picture of godly leadership. If I'm tired of the selfishness that I see across this land in spiritual leadership, in churches, then what, is, what does God must feel? How must he think as he looks out at the spiritual landscape of the church in America, not the big C church, not the really genuinely converted people, but the landscape of American Christianity that is not marked by selflessness, but rather by selfishness. Men that are more concerned about their brand and about their title and about their image they need to become like mothers who lose themselves in the care of their children. In fact, in our own day, this idea is, is seen as ridiculous. Sometimes listen to interviews because I'm curious what the world thinks and what the culture around us is, is the messaging of the culture around us. And I often hear young women, as they're asked about motherhood and as they're asked about caring for children, they see it as a great burden. They cannot imagine sacrificing their career to stay home and take care of children in their minds that is seen as completely irrelevant. Someone else can do that. But here Paul is not ashamed as an apostle of Jesus Christ to call himself a woman who loves her children. Because in loving her children, a woman exemplifies part of the image of God. She was made this way. This is how God designed her, and this is how God equipped her, and this is what he has made her for. And when she does this, and when she loses herself in the service of her family, God is honored. The world looks and laughs and says, you idiots, but God says, well done, sister. Beloved, do not be ashamed to embrace the calling that God has for your life. I'm not ashamed of women who sacrifice great sacrifices to care for little children that will never thank them. God sees 
what is done in secret, and God will reward you. Amen? Paul's not ashamed to say he was like a nursing mother because that picture, more than any other picture, vividly illustrates the care that he has for this new flock. Willing to do anything to foster the life that God has given them. And here's here's the process. This is true of motherhood as well. As the mother sacrifices herself to care for her children, what happens is this, that even though she's giving up her sleep and giving up her uh, parts of her body and giving up uh, other things, she actually falls more and more in love with this child. And this is what happened with Paul. So being affectionately desirous of you, as God gave you life under the preaching of the gospel and you came to life and we started to care for you, we became in love with you and we longed to be with you. Our hearts were knit to yours like you mothers who love your children in ways that fathers can't. And don't. Children need mothers. Mothers who will embrace the calling that God has on their life. That will not be ashamed. But will instead pour themselves out for the care of their children. And what will happen as a result which shouldn't surprise us because Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. As the mother gives of her life to her children, she receives an affectionate love for them. She loves them more and more and more. Paul said that's exactly what happened with us as spiritual leaders. The more we cared for you, the more we loved you, the more we longed for you. And it says this, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. I think what he's saying here is this. Look, the, the calling of God on our life as an apostle, he would say, is this, that we need to go into a town and we need to proclaim the gospel of God. We need to make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We need to make this message known because God has commissioned us from heaven to do so. Paul says elsewhere, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But Paul went beyond that. Because as he preached and as some got saved and as Paul began to care for them and his, his, his heart was softened towards them and he fell in love with them, he wanted to share not just the gospel but his very life, his, his suke, his soul. It could just refer to the, the whole, the entirety of his life, or I think even more importantly, the inner part of Paul's life. I've heard this counsel given multiple times as a young pastor, and even before I was a pastor, trying to find godly men in, in front of me and men to model my life after. And I've heard this said from previous generations that a pastor cannot be friends with the people in his own church. And as a young man, 
I quietly thought on that statement. I refrained from speaking because my heart wanted to say, that's stupid. But I had the wisdom to say I should hold my tongue. But the older I get and the longer I pastor, the more willing I'm to say, I am to say that is stupid advice. In fact, that's probably part of the reason so many churches do not have a healthy, thriving ministry. Because you have a pastor who's separated from the people. He's a paid professional who does a job, goes home, has his own friends, has his own life, has his own interests, and then comes back, clocks in, does a job, and then goes home. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. He literally says, we started caring for you, and we loved you, and we longed for you, and we were ready to share our very suke, our soul with you. Because when you love someone, it tears down all the walls and you become vulnerable in the deepest depths of who you are. Paul was not afraid to share with these people his weaknesses. He wasn't afraid to come to a meeting and say, guys, pray for me. I'm really discouraged this morning. These are his brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the precious people that have been bought by the blood of Jesus, they are with him. And the more he cared for them, the more he longed for them, the more he shared with them. Verse 9, carrying on the same thought of a nursing mother laying down her life sacrificially for her children. He says this, for you remember, reminding them of his time with them, you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Again, they're there to preach the gospel. That's why God sent them there. But in their preaching, as some are getting saved, and Paul is already anticipating the accusations that will be leveled against him, that you're just some itinerant preacher going around trying to make a living off of sorry saps. You're just taking advantage of weak people that need religion. Paul says, I will have none of that. And so he makes up his mind early on, you know what, I could receive a living for what I do. Paul is an apostle of Christ. He has a right to receive a a, a financial blessing from those whom he's ministering to. But he made up his mind early on, I will not do that. Especially as we see through the New Testament, especially with new converts and young early churches. And so he works night and day. Preaching the gospel is in in all of those times, but as he's preaching, he's also working with his hands. He's doing something to create a living for himself, and not just for himself, but even for his traveling companions. Doesn't this sound like a mother? You know, that clocks in at nine and then takes a break, you know, 15-minute break after a couple hours, then clocks out for lunch, And then, you know, at the end of the day, at 5 o'clock, she clocks out and she goes about her life. That's motherhood, right? No. 
quite the opposite. When do you not be a mother if you're a mother? It's a lifelong thing, which is why the world doesn't like it. The world looks at it as bondage. It is bondage. It's willful bondage. I'm giving up myself to love you fully and completely. God says, amen, just like I designed. Paul willingly worked night and day. He toiled night and day. Doesn't mean he never slept. It just means throughout the course of his waking hours, he's always working. If there is a definition of motherhood, that's it. So that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul now is ready to change gears. He's ready to move on to a different metaphor, keeping with the family that he's already begun to describe. He now moves to another pivotal role, that of the father. In transition, he says in verse 10, you are witnesses, again, calling on these Thessalonians, and God also, standing bare before the God of heaven who sees all and knows all. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. How different would the churches in America be if men of God could stand up in public and declare before the people in whom they minister, we were holy and righteous and blameless in our conduct toward you and calling God himself as witness. What if men had such a clean conscience that they could speak with that kind of authority? I think we'd see the same thing. We'd see tender affection for one another. We'd see a genuine work of God in the hearts of his people, calling them out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We would see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit breaking us down and building us up in Christ. We would see unity because people would not be given to their own selfish ambitions. Oh, that God would give us more men like Paul. And oh, that God would create in me a heart like Paul's. Pray for me that I could say these things with the same sense of sincerity. Not because it's my job, because it's my calling. Pray for us as elders that we would follow in the footsteps of our older brother, Paul. Paul, as he transitions in metaphors to begin to speak of fathers, he essentially lays out for us the first criteria, the first aspect of fatherly spiritual leadership. They set an example. Paul was among these people for only three to five, maybe eight weeks the most, but in that time, his life 
was so exemplary that he can write about it months later and draw it up as an illustration and say, you remember what we were like. In private conversations, in public discourses, or in me- during mealtime, during recreation time, in passing time, we were the same type of man. We were the man that was given over to the things of God. Our conduct was righteous and blameless and holy. Doesn't mean perfect. Doesn't mean Paul didn't fail and falter. Doesn't mean that Paul never got angry sometimes and maybe said something he shouldn't have said. Means that Paul was a single minded man given over to the things of God. And it was so obvious that he can literally call it up as evidence. Husbands, fathers set the tone spiritually in their home for the spiritual temperature and the climate of their home. Elders, as as the fathers in this metaphor, elders, the spiritual leaders, set the tone for a church's spiritual maturity. If they are given over to holy, righteous, blameless living before a holy God, then God will bring along with them other people that are drawn up to that. This is why Paul lists out in the as he's listing out the qualifications for elders, he says the, the elder must be first off above reproach. Why would you elevate a man to spiritual leadership who is not worth emulating? Who cares how much money he's made or how successful his business is if he does not love his wife? Verse 11, for you know, you know, How like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. You could summarize these other qualifications into speaking. The father with his children sets an example worth emulating and following, and then he speaks. He uses his words to instruct and to disciple and to bring along his children and to exhort them to come up into full maturity into what he is and even beyond. That's essentially what Paul is summarizing here with these words in verse 12. For we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If children are known for their humility and mothers are known for their tender care and affection, then fathers ought to be known for their strength and their conviction and their fortitude in what God has told them. Oh, that God would raise up men with a voice that would shake the heavens. Doesn't mean they have to talk loud. They can talk softly, but their words mean something. Their example goes before the things that they say. So when they say the things they say, people say, that man believes that. Far too many preachers in pulpits 
sound like men that are trying to convince themselves to believe what they're saying. I listen to them and I think, you don't even believe that. You need to get out of the pulpit, go get alone in prayer, study more, live more righteously, and believe what you're saying. Otherwise, people won't follow you. I'm struck by something as I think about this text as it relates to the cultural mess that we're in. The enemy of our souls, that ancient serpent, the devil, is still trying to do what he did in Thessalonica and what he did in the garden. He's trying to undo the work of God. He's trying to snuff out what God has lit up. And he is crafty. He is wily, this old serpent. And he has now, rather than coming head on to the Church of America, he has let the Church of America have so much freedom and so much luxury and so much wealth and prosperity and time and leisure. And while the church is entertaining itself, he's leading the culture into saying things like boys can be girls and girls can be boys and women can do whatever they want and husbands can just be selfish. And we can see the destruction that it has on families, but did you know that the enemy of our souls is using it in the church? This insidious ploy is being used in the church to undermine what God has made good. And now, rather than strong leaderships, we have sissies, we have pansies who cannot lead the people of God. And we have people given to selfishness. And we have children that rather than being humble, are marked by all kinds of vileness. Don't be surprised if that type of church is impotent in its efforts to preach the gospel. As Paul would say elsewhere, there is a form of godliness, but they deny its power. The power comes in a clean conscience before a holy God. Oh, that God would raise up men like Paul with the humility of a child, the tender affection of a mother, and the strong conviction of a father. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do this work in us. I pray that you would expose the fakes and the frauds among us and that you would strengthen our weaknesses. I pray that you would help us to be single-minded in our focus. Help us, Lord, to live 
by faith as we trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, that you would do amazing things among us. That we could look back over the years of ministry that you give us, Lord, and we could give you glory and praise for the many things that you allowed us to be a part of. Please, Lord, do your work among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.